Hey friends, welcome back to Rewildology, the show all about conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. If you had to choose your favorite mammalian predator, what would it be? If you asked me this question when I was younger, without hesitation, I would have said lions. For as many hours as my sisters would let me, I'd watch nature documentaries from all across the world. My small, rural town seemed so boring in comparison to the great Serengeti, Maasai Mara, and I daydream of the day I'd finally see a lion in the wild. Fast forward several years, and out of nowhere, probably the most beautiful cat leaped onto the world stage, the snow leopard. Since the moment I saw a snow leopard for the first time on television, I wanted to learn as much as I possibly could about them. But these well-adapted cats happen to reside in one of the harshest environments on the globe, the Himalayas. How do we conserve an apex predator that's ridiculously elusive, solitary, and blends in perfectly with his mountain home? That is where today's guest, Renzen Lama, steps in. Renzen grew up in Humla, a remote and isolated mountain village in western Nepal. He spent his childhood playing in nature with friends and skipping glass as much as possible. When the royal massacre of 2001 sparked the Nepalese civil war, Renzen's parents decided to pack up and leave their tribal home for the capital city, Kathmandu. It was Renzen's first time in a city, and he had a lot to learn. But he dedicated himself to his studies, and with a lot of twists and turns, found his passion for wildlife biology and dedicated his career to conserving the elusive snow leopard. Renzen was recently selected as a Rolex Laureate, which this grant will help fund his work with local communities and mountain herders to create solutions for the ever-growing human snow leopard conflict. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to never miss a future episode. If you'd like to support the show, check out the new Rewildology merch store at rewildology.com. 10% of anything you purchase will be donated to our conservation partners. We are all in this together. All right, everyone. On to today's show with Rinzen. Hi, Rinzen. Thank you so much for coming on today. I am so excited to get into your story and your work with snow leopards, which just happens to be one of my favorite species. So I'm very excited to learn from you. But before we do, let's go back in time because now you're a snow leopard expert, but you weren't before. So what was your childhood like? What was what did you do growing up? What was young Rinzen like? I think that's that's a very good question. You know, it's nostalgic. I grew up in Humla. Uh, Humla is uh, one of the very remote districts in northwestern Nepal. I was born and grew up and attended local school in a village named Borgano. And the village is not that big. You know, it's it's a it's a sixty household village. So as a kid, I remember. You know, as far as I remember, we were enjoying a lot, uh, riding horses, donkeys, playing with other friends, going to the stream. Festivals were one of the very memorable things. And then when we were young, we, we would build up a group and go up in the forest, try to kill the birds. These were some of the big memories you know, that I bring back. And our village was more like a isolated. It was very isolated. We wouldn't go that far. So it was, the life was basically within the village. And that is something really memorable. Mm. 
Yeah. And, and just bringing up that bird thing, um, I would love to ask a little bit more about that. So, so was your community like more subsidence hunters and like were birds part of what your normal diet was? I asked because when I was in Nepal, I interviewed Basu Badar, uh, Badardi. And he was a bird conservationist in Chitwan. And he talked a lot about uh, bird hunting up in the mountains. So is that is that what it, what it was for? Was mostly just, you know, dinner? Actually, it's not for subsistence, you know, like the kids in the remote areas. When you imagine about very remote areas of indigenous tribe living close to the forest or parcel, uh, this is something, the fun activity that kid likes to do. You know, it's not for like big people, but it's mostly kids with the caterpillar, not other things with the catapult, some like indigenous trapping techniques, mostly the kids. But that was the purpose. You know, we were like having fun and like trying to demonstrate as a kid who is more skillful in hunting. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm a better hunter than you. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was more like that, exactly. And then like sometimes you would, you would skip a school, you know. You have a lunch, your parents back to take it to school, but you are skipping your school because from village to the school, it takes uh, 25, 30 minutes. Oh, and wow. You take the other way. You go just go to the forest and whole day you spend, you know, trying to hunt the bird, but at the end, nothing happens. And then at the exact time when you see the other kids coming back from school and then you join them and come back to the, come back <laughs> to the, you know, it's just something like I have done several times actually. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Oh, that's awesome. So whenever you could, you were just skipping class and going and playing in nature, it sounds like. Yeah, there was there was one of the very big part of the fun as a kid. Oh, that's awesome. So it sounds like your village was very remote. And so how big was your village? And do you remember the first time you left your isolated home? Our village like you know, compared to the in that setting, in that remote setting, our village is quite big. It's sixty plus household at that time. Uh, I think it's one of the biggest villages in our valley, in our tribal communities. You know, we we have uh, our tribe is called Ninba, Ninba Indigenous Tribe, and then it has a four major villages, and our village is one of the big ones. Like when I I was young, sometimes we will go to other villages during the festival. Uh, you know, we follow shamanism and Buddhism. And we have lots of salmon festival, not just in our village, but our other tribal villages as well. So when we were a kid, we would go there to, you know, to enjoy that with the friends. We have done this sec- several occasions you know, before I came to Kathmandu. Mm, that sounds like so much fun. I'm sure that the festivals were something that everybody looked forward to. It was like a big event, especially if you're going to like another village and seeing other people. Oh my gosh, I'm sure that was so fun. I mean, I love festivals in my hometown. I always look forward <laughs> to them too. So, <laughs> so when was the first time then that you left your small village and left that isolated area? It was back in 2002. And the, the biggest memory was... During that time, there was a World Cup going on. Uh, like, that is what my first impression of coming to Kathmandu. So it was in 2002, after the royal massacre, you know, the king of the whole royal family were massacred. And then uh, there was a civil war going on in Nepal. Uh, and the, the Western region, the Western part of the country where I come from, uh, this were the more influenced area because this was more remote, more inaccessible. And that was where, the, you know, the holdup of the Maoists or the, the guerrillas were more strong. 
And after the royal massacre, there was lots of uh, confusion among the parents as well. You know, what's going to be like? They might be worried that, you know, their kids will just join the war or something. Lots of things were there. There was a big state of confusion. I am one of very like a few lucky ones you know, to have the opportunity to come to Kathmandu in between those crises. So it was in 2002 uh, I came to Kathmandu, uh, and then I was immediately put in a boarding school because my parents they were able to afford me to do that. But many children they were they didn't have that privilege, and I'm honored and I'm very privileged, and that is mm-hmm. what helped me to be here today. Yeah. Wow. Did you by chance know anyone that got caught up in the war and joined either side, like from your village? Yeah, there were lots of people died, but those were senior, you know. Uh, of my age, like a few, I think like quite a lot, they joined the war. Mm-hmm. Not in the main army, but in the more in the cultural group, you know. There used to be lots of dances, singing, and that was very fascinating. You know, everybody, oh, wow. This is so fascinating. I want to be that. There was a like, feeling like that. And I also had that feeling when I was there. Uh, but afterwards, many people, they left it. They left the war and then they came to the city area. But fortunately, you know, unfortunately or luckily, like none of my friends, they were killed. Mm-hmm. They died or they lost life in the war. Good. That's so good. Yeah, because when I was there, um, I chatted a lot, especially with Jack Ken Ross about the war. Um is he was talking a lot about that because he's a, a based in Bardia. Bardia, And so, and so, yeah, I'm, I mean, everybody knows everybody I'm learning. Um, but yeah, that would make sense. You're in the big cat world. You know, Jack, everybody knows Jack, but he talked a lot about that and how just scary and deadly it was just with, especially on that side of the um, country. And so just to hear that it was so close to you and, because of that war, you ended up leaving your home village. I mean, that's pretty big. What, how did that feel for you? Were you excited? Were you scared? What was it like getting to Kathmandu, which is on a very different pace than I'm sure your home village was? You know, as a kid in the village, like you hear lots of stories. Okay, in the big cities, you know, lots of things happen. Students get, uh, you know, sale or they get the kidney taken out or they get something, <laughs> you know, the, lots of mysteries, you know, lots of like stories like that. Like when people come out, come from Kathmandu and other areas, they will tell us those kind of stories. In the big city, all these things, things happen. You know, like, and that is something really upgrading. You know? That is something really like you don't really want to be. And then my parents, they were insisting me to go to the boarding school before that. And then mm-hmm. I, wa- I didn't, I was denying them because I didn't want to go. But later, when I was about to come, that time I was a little bit excited. And some of my friends, they traveled down, they came back, you know. And then when you hear about all the interesting thing, you know, like you get to, uh, you will get to ride the buses, but you will ri- get to ride the plane, you know, that you have only seen in the picture, the buses we have only seen in the picture, in the book, in plane that you can only see, you know, that comes, but you have, we have never been there. So this was completely later. Over the time, I was really curious and really excited to see all these things. Uh, and I think there was lots of excitement for me. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's good because <laughs> I can see that totally going either way, being uprooted. But yeah, there's so many just life experiences that I'm sure you had from the moment you got there. Like you said, just riding on a bus and flying in a plane and probably just the hustle and bustle was <laughs> a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so when you got to boarding school, 
well, obviously you couldn't skip school and go hunt in the forest anymore, but did you have like a certain subject that you focused on? Um, so what, what was your educational career after that when you got into boarding school? When I was coming down to Cartoon, I was studying grade, I passed in grade five back in the village. And, and again, I started from grade five here. And then uh, in the village, like it was only government school, you didn't have that good English. So basically, I was studying English at grade five in Cartoon, in the boarding school. And it was tough for me. It was already a lot of stress. And I wouldn't understand anything. And at that time, at, in those days, there used to be a lot of punishment when you don't do the assignment. Or when you are not able to answer the questions. And as, as a tribal boy, you could say literally a tribal boy, you don't even understand Nepali very properly. And it's getting to a boarding school with all the English curriculum courses. You know, and, and that was really a top moment. That was really a top moment. Sounds like it was. But you persevered. And I mean, your English is great now. So it clearly worked out. So what yeah. did you do? So... What did you do after that? Um, so did you go to college and decided to study a certain thing at the university or pretty much what was the path that took you to Snow Leopard? So you're in boarding school. And then what did you decide to do after that? Yeah, in boarding school, you know, in the beginning, as I said, it was lots of frustrating. This was pretty much frustrating state for me, like coming back from the, coming from the remote isolated area uh, and then coming to the board. It was about... The only choice I had was you know, study and study so that I really need to improve it. You don't want to be every day like what you call it. You don't want to go to the class without properly assignment done. You don't want to, you don't want to be one of the students who, who is not able to answer what teacher asked for, you know. So there was something really bothering me. So I, the only choice I was trying to study more and more, try to focus all my time on study. And it went very good, you know. And then I finished my school. After that, like I... Like I didn't have very specific plan. Maybe like I was thinking of doing a management, right? And at the same time, I also wanted to do something with the forestry. I had some connection with the forestry people from very young age. And uh, and then we had to wait. After high school, like we have three-month break to... I was on that break. And during that break, I traveled a bit. I went back to Humla. Then I had a connection with those, uh, like, you know, many people who are involved in the environmental sector. And then and that was uh, something, you know, that was something that uh, motivated me to be in the environmental sector. Wow. So then continue on, keep going. What what did you end up studying after that? So in Nepal, there are two colleges at that time. You know, there were only two campuses where you would get to study forestry. But it's very strict uh, in trans basis. And they have a very fixed quota, Right. And the, the interest exam was this uh, later than the private colleges. So I joined private college in Kathmandu. And then I joined for the accounting, you know, management, more like a finance field. And then after about a month, or I think after about two months of, you know, attending the college here, and then the, the result in the forestry campus was announced, uh, the campus is in Pokhara and I was one of the students, you know, getting admitted. Like I got the spot to study first, and then I quit it here. I went to Pokhara to study. Uh, in the beginning, it was like very comfortable, you know, lots of young people coming up. It was a residential campus, and then like you could meet your seniors. And the college is so good in a good, very good environment, like sports and all. Lots of fun. It was quite lots of fun in the beginning. Mm, mm. Is that where? Is that when you met Sonam? Not yet, you know, like I was starting grade 11 and 12 and then 
I was the first boy in my class. And I'm not first boy, but first one, uh, first boy, of course, yeah, the, the best topper, how you call it, the topper. That's and, awesome. And I, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's hard to believe, yeah. <laughs> and after completing uh, the IC forestry, uh, we operate in the entrance. And, and even until that time, I didn't meet Sonam. So we got, I got admitted, Sonam got admitted. And I met Sonam in, at WWF office when we were giving interview for the scholarship. That was the first time I met him. Mm. And then we, got, we both got admitted in the Forest College and we became roommates later afterwards. And uh, that is how our bonding started. Mm. Uh, yeah, and for those who might not have heard the episode, so in uh, the Nepal series that I recently released, uh, Sonam is with the Red Panda Network and he's who connected me and Renzen. So because <laughs> you guys were roommates together. This is awesome. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So then after that, so at this point you're studying to go into forestry, which isn't, you know, like a wildlife biology degree. So what was the switch then? Why did you start to get into like Himalayan wildlife and, and eventually the snow leopard? What was that journey and that transition? Yeah. Until like I was studying BSc, I was, you know, I joined BSc. Uh, my still at that time, like the only plan was to be a forester, to, uh, to be in the government sector. And as we started, I got connected with more of the wildlife people, you know, and then I travel a lot during my BSc. And we visited lots of national parks and lots of things. And that was the time I was starting to learn about the snow leopard. And after meeting many, like, uh, whatever, wildlife biologists, you know, my, like some of them were my current team member, I became more interested in the mountain environment that I could feed it. You know, when we were going down uh, to Tarai, Bardia or Chiton, it was so hard. It was really difficult for me. And I could just feel the heat, you know, and I not, not it's comfortable hot. at all. <laughs> yeah. When, when I go out to Munang or Mustang, it's, it's something like, you know, it's body get lighter and I'm enjoying it. And I feel like, okay, uh, like Tarai is not for me. Or Mithil is not for me. Mountain should be something that I should be working on. And what is the, uh, what could be the best things to work in the mountain? And it's a snow leopard, you know, the top predator or the icon of the mountain. That is how my interest was growing. So I was looking at the opportunity to open a snow leopard when I was doing my, my bachelor final project paper, but I was not able to get any funding. You know, without funding, it's tough. Uh, that is how I skipped the idea of uh, working on the snow leopard. But I work on other mountain mammals. It was pika, a tiny hair. That is what I was studying for my undergrad uh, final project paper. And it's, it's still in the same snow leopard habitat, you know. And slowly and slowly, uh, things uh, came in the way that I was really wishing for. Mm. And today, I'm a snow leopard biologist. So what happened after that? What was your like big opening to start studying snow leopards? In, uh, right after I finished my bachelor, there was an application call from one of the PhD students from the Cambridge University. So his project was basically focusing on snow leopard and sustainability in the Himalayas. So it was about starting human snow leopard conflict, you know, lots of interviews, uh, and also like about wild prey, you know, and I applied for it and I was one of the field assistants to, for that project. Luckily, I got selected for that. So that, that provided me opportunity to work more intensively in Anupuna Conservation Area and Sagarmatha National Park. And that field work was really supportive. It gave me a lot of idea about it. You know, and that was the start point. That was the start point. 
mean, when I was in Annapurna Conservation Area, especially in Manan, the ballast cat was just recently discovered. You know, there was uh, discovered new cat species for Nepal. So that was the time I got to meet Tasia Gale, who first photographed this cat. And then I had a chance to meet him and, like, you know, like literally speak to him. Okay, I'm interested in doing something like this. You know, will you be interested? Can we work together or something like that? And that was the time I was approaching him. And he agreed, you know, luckily he agreed. And that is how I built connection with him. And uh, that is how we work a lot in Manan, not just on Alaska, but it's not like, but, you know, for like 14 until 2019, we have a program there. So the journey was like that. I started as a research assistant for a scholar who is studying Snow Leopard, but in a social way. Mm. And then, so then, then after that, did you go on to lead your own team? Because I'm pretty sure you said... You have at least your master's, is that correct? No, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so were they your subject for your master's, Snow Leopards? Yes. So the other interesting thing is, you know, after that, uh, I went to Seattle for a six-month uh, exchange program with a non-profit in Seattle. We were basically working on environmental restoration, volunteer management, leadership development, all these things. So that was very supportive, you know, that got me an international exposure. Uh, there was a time I got connected to Snow Leopard network, you know, and I visited Woodland Park Zoo, and these all were like fueling all my passion. During that time, I applied for the funding uh, to Snow Leopard Network, and then luckily it was accepted. I got funding to study Snow Leopard. That was the first one on Snow Leopard we were getting. As I came back from there, uh, we had some other funding as well to study Palaska. And as soon as I returned back from Seattle, I was leading a study in Palaska as a principal investigator, as we were intensive camera trapping work in Manan to study the palaskat, the new carry species. And the aim was not just to study the palaskat, simultaneously to study snow leopard as well. You know, we were in the very beginning step of uh, this kind of uh, field surveys. So it was not just me. I was there. My other senior colleague is there, who is also my mentor, you know, Gangaram Rekmi, Asya Gali. We were three person doing all these studies at the time. Mm. So then after that, so now you are officially studying snow leopards and palace cats because, you know, they, they live in the same ecosystem. So what did you start to discover? What are some of the things that you learned during your studies? Quite lots of things, you know, like uh, we, we basically focus on field biology, you know, not just digs. I also like to call it modern food biology. We just be out in the field as much as possible, you know, spend more time, more time, just travel, travel around and try to get more and more field knowledge on this species, behavior, habitat, all this thing. So it's starting lots of snow leopard behavior. We we studied snow behavior a lot in Manan. Palaskar is very rare, you know, like we didn't have, but we discovered like lots of areas, locations that the cat is moving, you know, like tentative areas where the cat is zooming around. That was supportive. We're starting the previous of the Palaskar, the previous of the Snow Leopard. We're working with the herders and how the herders feels about it, what needs to be done, and habitat composition, of course, the habitat used things, how what type of habitat is more livestock get killed, what type of habitat is more snow leopard using for resting time. Lots of behavior things, lots of behavior things we're starting. Yeah. Hmm. Was there anything that surprised you when you started to study them? No, I was very, you know, like the smaller part and all these things are very new to me. So basically I was, I really wanted to build up my knowledge based on the field engagement you know, so that I could be a good biologist. And I think like uh, we're doing pretty good with that. So 
that was the primary object. That was the primary aim. The new thing we we're looking at was, you know, it's not about survival. You know, survival means not the adult one, but calf survival. How many uh, kittens they they have, and how they are moving it, how long they are staying with their mother. You know, what is the survival rate of the kittens like? So these were some of the unique uh, component that we not, you know, it's hard to study. We're studying through our camera trap images, camera trap footages. Those are very useful ones. Mm, and has that research been published? What did you find for their survival rate? Not yet, because the sample size was very small, so we didn't publish it. But that is something we really missed to do it, because we were very new, and I was very new to the field. My team was quite new to that field. Uh, we didn't have lots of ideas whether this this kind of data also get published. You know, but it was more like a learning for us. We were really trying to build up our own knowledge. Uh, maybe at some point, you know, as we continue our monitoring. Uh, it would be good to publish, definitely something worth to publish because there are lots of information missing in this dimension. Mm, yes. It almost feels, um, someone who's loved big cats for so long, it almost feels like snow leopards just came on the scene out of nowhere. I guess I, you know, I was that little girl that grew up watching the Discovery Channel and every single lion documentary that I could find or tigers or something. And then out of nowhere, this gorgeous cat called the snow leopard just like came in came on the scene and while the more and more research has been coming out about it which is why i'm so excited to be sitting down and talking to you there still really isn't that much out there about these cats we just see these insane videos i'm sure that i'm sure you've seen the viral video of like that cat that just lunges itself off of the side of a mountain with an ibex and falls for like five yeah. minutes and while holding it the whole time and we're like how is this a thing like it was the most amazing one of the most amazing videos i had it sent to me i don't know how many times that exact video um but yeah so it's like these incredibly adapted mountain resilient cats and there still seems to be so much to learn about them um, yeah, has there even been any papers uh, published about kitten survival rates or anything? Or is your team one of the first ones to study it? Maybe like those who have done radio polaring, they might have the data on that, but I don't really see a very robust paper that represents these things. You know, There mm. have been some cop survival, sorry, like the kitten survival uh, in the zoo, maybe in the zoo, but in zoo, of course, like it's a controlled area. There are, uh, apart from that, there are hardly the studies that has this kind of dev information because they have monitored snow leopard continuous three years. That is how we knew about it, right? So we are basically monitoring snow leopard and their cub for three years, three generations. It's let's say three generations, or not three, but three peers. Uh, and now, I right now, like we realize, I think this information is supportive. Not just about the survival, but how they are using the area in reference to the human disturbances, in reference to the prey movement, you know, and in reference to the other predator movement. This is something really interesting that I realized, like you know, not not very like recently, recently. So this is something that is worth publishing and sharing this information with the audience, uh, and this should be something ad addition uh, to the existing information that we have as well. Yes. Yes, 
And I know I will definitely be reading that paper. Whenever you get that published or coming back on, you know that, right? Because I want you yeah. to talk about that paper <laughs> when it comes to be. Um, yeah, no, that's so exciting. I cannot wait to see what your team comes out with. Um, but before that, uh, before those papers come out, we chatted a lot last about what is going on with the snow leopard. So we know that they are coming into quite a bit of conflict with, you know, just local <laughs> people that happen to live in the mountains. So what has your team discovered? That's the, like the causes of human snow leopard conflict. Um, what are some of their biggest threats? Yeah. When we speak about the, Snow leopard conservation, you know, apart from other uh, other different issues, I think the human snow leopard conflict is the most severe one. And that is more related to the human itself, and that has to be resolved uh, in the mountains, not just only in Nepalese mountains, but in other parts of the world as well. Uh, livestock, you know, herding is one of the key economic activities, you know, and then these livestock they graze in the same area where snow leopard roams, so it's basically overlapping. And there is an interaction, definitely interaction. I mean, this interaction is not always uh, what you call peaceful. Uh, and then in many occasions, uh, like the result is it's not leopard kill livestock. That is where all the problem starts. And if the herders who live up high in the mountains, about 4,000 meters, where no conservation like officers are present, where no other human monitoring are available, you know, if they are not, uh, if the conflict is not resolved, if those herders are not treated well, you know, in the conservation process. They are not aware well, then the conservation consequences is not good. You know, they are the one like who really have a big role in protecting our biodiversity, protecting such like threatened and you know, beautiful species. So our focus, you know, what we have found over the years, over the seven years of Philogates Women is not labor conflict must be mitigated. And we should focus on this. This is the most important dimension and this is the most important aspect to uh, you know, uh, to address. And is, from what your team has discovered, it, is the snow leopard opportunistically hunting livestock? Or is their prey base going down too and they don't have another choice? What are you finding is the cause for the conflict? There are two, like both are the reasons. It depends on the area. You know, it depends on the area. Basically, Livestock are much more easier to kill than the natural prey. When you have the choices, like livestock is grinding, like grazing lower in the same area and the blue sheep is grazing in the same area, it's no longer somewhere up and it's looking for the food, then it's easier for snow leopard to kill livestock than the natural prey, right? So this is something, the conflict we are inviting because we are taking our livestock in India where snow leopard are. Uh, this is one of the things. The other thing is, you know, the many studies show snow leopard tends to kill livestock more frequently when the prey is very less or prey density is very low. That is also one of the scenarios that we have in Upper Muslim, you know, the upper part of the Annapurna conservation area. But in Manan, the prey, natural prey density is very good. Livestock density is also good. And when the both the density is good, the other thing is snow leopard density is also good. You know, when you have more snow leopard, more wild prey, more livestock, of course, this is the, the ultimate result is proportional. Again, you know, like both natural prey and domestic livestock get killed more. 
So this is the critical question. You know, there is no uh, what you call like the exact answer to this. The, our current study is more focused on this, uh, you know, this relationship. So what is the role of uh, you know, livestock availability and the wild prey availability in conflict? You know, so is it because of the less density of the blue sheep, or is it because of the more density of blue sheep or livestock? Or there are other habitat factors. So we are examining this in greater detail now. Mm. Yeah, because that, that's beautiful that you're studying so many factors and comparing them at once. Because then, yeah, you're going to have this very comprehensive look at what is going on with snow leopards. Oh, my gosh, that is so exciting. I'm I'm geeking out real hard is what I'm saying. <laughs> like my wildlife biologist, just like, oh, this is awesome. Oh, all the questions, all the science questions. I'm freaking loving it. So. On that note, since you are studying the conflict part, so, you know, because that's what's going to kill or keep them around is understanding the conflict. So what is the biggest threat? Is it climate change? Is it um, humans? Is it like lack of prey? Is it loss of habitat? Um, What would you say in your work is the number one threat? And then how do we help mitigate that threat? I think the number one threat is human, right? We are the one like causing all these troubles, no matter whether it's a previous hunting or, or conflict or climate change, but somehow not, not necessarily the same community, but human as a whole. Uh, in Nepal, Himalaya, conflict is the biggest challenge. Uh, either it's, it's from livestock killing or local people killing the prey for subsistence hunting, you know, all these things. It's, it's difficult to monitor actually. So we have a challenge. Uh, apart from that, the habitat loss is also there. You know, that, right? There are lots of people climb up in the mountain to or the harvesting of the anti-APS, you know, uh, the medicinal plants uh, like cordyceps and all this. There are, there are some lots of issues. So as a human footprint increases, the challenges increases and we are the one to take the responsibility. Mm. Yeah. That's a great answer. That is a great answer. Um, and I couldn't agree more with that. So then last time we chatted, there are a whole bunch, like just a whole swath of techniques that you all are currently trying to see how to mitigate the the human wildlife conflict that you're seeing with snow leopards in the mountains. So what are some of those? I mean, your ideas were brilliant that you told me. So I would love to explore those a little further. How are you protecting snow leopards from humans and vice versa? Basically, one of the key research questions of our current research, this research is in the collaboration with the University of Göttingen, Germany, where I studied a master. So we are looking at what might be the different local level techniques that are harder to use to avoid the predators. Either it can be coral, you know, like building wall around the livestock pens, or maybe burning dung at the corner at nighttime, and when the smoke comes out, maybe it gives the presence of human. Uh, it can be radio devices, you know, playing musical devices overnight. And we have, we have been piloting fox light. So fox light is, is basically a lighting device. You know, it has a solar on it. During the daytime, the solar charges the battery. As soon as it gets dark, it started emit light itself. So it's an automatic device. Daytime off, nighttime open. And we are also piloting there whether it's really working for predator, not just snow leopard, but also for wolves, you know, 
The other thing is predator-proof coral. So coral building out of the iron mist, covering all the area with the iron mist. And, and the other thing is traditional heart. You know, in the past we have all the eastern wall fully covered traditional heart. They're looking at this different intervention that are different measures that local have been using now. The fox light and the predator-proof coral is relatively new techniques now. You know, like we have been piloting that fox light, uh, predator-proof coral, and the musical device. These are something we are we are introducing it to look at whether it's really effective or not in reducing livestock. So this the whole set of this different intervention, either we introduce or it's already in practice. We are looking at how effective these techniques are in reducing nighttime depredation. We are not concerned at the daytime because daytime there is no choice than guarding. So herders have separate has to be there looking after the livestock. But how can we minimize the nighttime depredation? That is the big question. Because lots of mass killing, you know, mass killing is the incidence where it's not able to kill multiple livestock at once. Now, so how can we reduce or how can we mitigate this kind of incidences, recurring incidences? That is how we are focusing on. And is there one method that seems to maybe be working better than the others? Or is it still too preliminary in your research to say that there's one that looks like it's going to come out on the top? <laughs> Of course, like I think predator-proof coral is the most effective, you know, because all the livestock is completely protected. But there are issues with each of the methods uh, we are piloting now. A predator-proof coral, uh, you know, it's not a pilot, it's in practice, but the only change is we are using some modern techniques, modern technology in it, not building wall, but it's something that you can cleanse it, you know, so that animal can breathe it easily. And, you know, everything is open, but the only difference is the predator cannot jump in and kill it. So that is the more strength point. But it's very costly. You know, the cost is high. And it's not mobile. You cannot just take the whole coral and move in other areas. Because in the mountain, livestock husbandry is more, they follow more of the rotational grazing. You know, they use summer in one area, autumn in other area, winter in other area, because of the grazing, grazing land and all these issues. So it's hard to say the exact effectiveness. You know, right now the fox side is also quite effective. Predator-proof coral is definitely effective. Burning dung at nighttime is also effective for the yaks. You know, so this each method is uh, different for different species of livestock: for horse, for some golden sheep, for eggs, for cattle. So the whole big question is going to come after the completion of the research. Right now, predator-proof coral as to predator-proof coral. Well, I didn't even think about that because, yeah, they, they do live a nomadic lifestyle. So you could have the most epic predator-proof corral, but if it can't move, huh, yeah. That's a challenge. You know, That's a big question. <laughs> wow. So the, if that makes total sense why it's, it's imperative to study these other possible <laughs> mitigation techniques because you can't pick up a corral and move it. Exactly. Wow. wow. Well, that's going to be really interesting when that comes out. So have you seen it in action? Like, have you seen like a snow leopard try or a wolf come? I mean, I'm just trying to think of how cool that would be like in person to yeah. see your work working <laughs> or, or, or like on camera traps and you see like a predator trying to come attack a corral or, or attack livestock or um, how's that gone? I think this is uh, one of the interesting you know, this should be one of the interesting moments that everybody wished for, but unlucky, you know, we are unlucky to have experienced that. 
but uh, in one of the our fox light area, not the coral, but the fox light where we have fox light, snow leopard has come very close, but not attacked the livestock. So we could see the signs because when we are installing fox light, you know, we we try we look all the area where snow leopard movement are, and we observe that. We want to have the fox light in the area which is more visible, and where the chances of snow leopard coming is more. That is the key purpose, so that. It's very visible and the snow leopard sees it, or wolf sees it, and they avoid the area, right? And we have one incident, we have observed it. There, there is a fresh movement, but they avoid it coming close to the coral. You know, that, like, you can feel it, you know, like we can, I can just imagine myself being in that scenario. But what hurdles, you know, the more interacting or the more, uh, like better evidence is the hardest experience. What they say is it, they can hear the sound. But they didn't come closer. Otherwise, they will just come in. You know, in the past, snow leopard or wolf have been coming to the coral kill. But when we introduce the fox light, they can still see, hear the sound, but they are not coming closer. You know, these are some of the movement that we can just dream of, or we can imagine. You know, we, we imagine some in our head and try to be in that uh, scenario. Mm. Like replaying it in your head, like what seeing like their pug marks and their tracks, and you're like, okay, yeah. this is what it did. It stopped here. It didn't go further. Oh, it came this close to the light. Came this close to the There's a corral. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's so cool. It's a whole set of movies, and it's just like a movie you are visualizing yourself. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Now I do have um, a little bit of a different question, and the only reason why I asked this is because what, during my master's, there was a, a specific course that I took that looked at the role religion plays in wildlife conservation. And I found quite a lot of work on uh, snow leopards and like different monasteries in the mountains and, and Buddhism and stuff. So I was wondering, have you seen any correlation between like protecting snow leopards and religion? Um, have, have you seen that at all? Or was that just a very specific case that these papers brought up? In the old days, you know, in the old days, along the Nepal trans, you know, the upper belt of Nepal, the main mode of education was Buddhism. So there was no formal school that time. The Buddhism used to be the key study that everybody does, you know, like for the generation of my parents or my grandparents. In that time, the Buddhism had very strong hold in day-to-day life, not just, uh, not just uh, what you call as a religion, but as a practice, you know, as a daily ritual. So this has a very dominant, a very profound impact on day-to-day life. And that is how lots of things are very well preserved, not just wildlife, forests, you know, water sources, the pastures. You know, and there were different like folklore, like myths related to this relationship. And that time it was working very, very good. You know, like there's, there are lots of narratives in you know, killing snow leopard is the biggest sign because it kills, it eats other animals. So basically, when you kill snow leopard, you you are inheriting all the signs that Islam leopard had committed. You know? And in those days, wow. in those spiritual days, you can imagine. So one, one who have really strong faith on the religion or the spirituality, don't want to do that. Because basically you are, you are cursing yourself doing these kind of activities. And people will not do that. But now things have changed a lot because of the globalization. right? So now the access is bigger. I'm in Humla now. Tomorrow I will be in USA. It's much easier. In those days, this was not possible. The communities were very isolated. Cohesive, you know, remoteness was always there. 
there was no modern education, so and, and things were working much better. And when you are working, when you live close to the nature, uh, as as a tribal community, you have more strong faith on nature, and that was how things were working very well. And and most of the publication on this dimension comes derived from that. But now things have changed a lot. Time has slipped. Paradigm has slipped. Uh, so the modern generation, who have more modern education, they they are no more. Like the, the religion alone is not sufficient, uh, you know, like to bring changes in the behavior. Now they know a lot about it, you know. So or, or, or many of the youngsters, they are not following any religion. So, but we have to address is the change in time, how time has shifted, how mode of economy has shifted, how the, what do you call, the process in day-to-day life has shifted, you know. All these things make big implication. It used to be in one time, right now it may or it may not. So that is a big question to look at. And that is, uh, and, and bring sense about it. Mm. Thank you for, for going into that for me, because that, that's a big question that I really wanted to ask you about. I mean, that makes total sense because we've seen it. I mean, it's definitely a global phenomenon that just religion in general is going down. And if the areas where the, they don't no longer believe that they're going to inherit the bad of that animal, the bad spirit of that animal, then then there's way less reason to, you know, like it doesn't matter if I kill it anymore. It killed five of my livestock last night. I don't really care. I'm not going to inherit its, you know, sins of the past. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank, thanks for, thanks for exploring that. So that I can also see how that would also lead cultures now to be more inclined to do retaliatory killings on to, snow leopards because just that that moral piece isn't there anymore that used to be in past generations wow thanks for that thanks for exactly that. Yeah, yeah because more of life has changed now it's more like global economies everywhere even if you want to be in the village at that time <clears throat> the were like for example in my own case like we were practicing barter economy there was no cash actions at all until the point when i was coming down to Kathmandu. so basically you're bartering everything you know there's no use of the cash now, without cash, nothing works. So when the cash involves, when the money involves, all set of things evolves around, right? That is why, I, like, you know, we often call it spirituality alone is not enough now. So we have to integrate it with the livelihood options. Well, lots of, well, lots of things to be addressed. So conservation is getting more complicated these days. Isn't that the truth? Amen. <laughs> I, I see, yeah, I can also see it just being in your four different study sites that you're studying, even though you're technically studying human wildlife conflict with snow leopards and livestock, watch it be like four completely different solutions <laughs> and all of your study spots, you know, just cause it is that complicated anymore. Mm. Yeah. I hope not for your sake, but watch yeah. it be though. <laughs> <laughs> that is a complicated paper to write. So I, I love to ask about stories. Um, do you have a particular story of a really exciting or crazy or wild time up in the mountains studying snow leopards? When we speak about mountains, it's all about history and experiences, I guess. Right? Mountain is not easy. Of course, like there are difficult fields to study, but mountain is one of the toughest. There are lots of incidences. One of the, the easiest ways, I'll just keep, uh, thing that is very relevant to ourselves 
for example, we go, we do, we go high up, we set up the camera, right? And then we come down the night. Overnight, there's a huge snowfall. And next morning when you wake up, there's a snow. <sighs> now, you have a camera out in the field to monitor wildlife, to monitor a snow leopard. When it is not working, then what is the use of having camera, right? So you have to climb up all those elevations in heavy snow and try to clean up the snow, right? And it's not just about one camera type location. Multiple, 15, 20, 25. And you come back. And the next three, four days, again, the same thing happens. You climb up again. So this is like, this is something uh, happens because winter is the best time to monitor snow leopard. And this is one of the same. The other thing is in, during the monsoon time or even until early autumn, up in the mountain, the fog is something really troubling. You climb up in a very high elevation, 5,000, let's say you're going through the cliff, you know, where the snow leopard are more frequently using or you're going to a high elevation to count blue sheep or monitor blue sheep. And then there's a fog all of cover. You don't see and there's no visibility. And how are you going to come down? So this is something we really encounter all the time. And we try to follow the landslide areas you know, where the stones are rolling down. You know? And then you follow it down, 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 down. Listen to the river where the stream is and try to come to the stream. And stream. And when we come, when we are able to come to the stream, then you know in the familiar area, you know about that stream. And following the stream, you come back. So these are something really happens. At once, Atasi and I was coming from Tiliso and we were really late. You know, we were monitoring one of our camera traps. We were really late, actually. And the only choice was we were not able to get the trail and we came down to the river. It was in the winter. We crossed the river with boots and everything on. And by the time we arrived at our camp, it was all ice. You know, you can't even unleash your legs. So it was frozen, basically. Oh. And then <laughs> you have to be at the fireside, try to melt the snow. And take out your boot, otherwise, you know, like you cannot warm your feet. So these are some of the challenges in the morning. There are lots of things. Sometimes, like uh, sometimes you have to. Sleep. Sometimes you don't. You are not able to come down. Try right, to look for caves and sleep. Uh, it happens. I think the mountain story is all about experience. Uh, it's also difficult. You know, it's a mix of everything. Mm. Sounds dangerous. Like really well, dangerous. <laughs> The people who have problem with the altitude, of course, it's very dangerous. You know, if we are not able to come, if there is a heavy snowfall, and if the snowfall doesn't come as it's snow, like you know, in the mountain, it comes with a storm. And when uh, we are not able to, uh, what you call, judge on time, you know, how the weather is going to be or predict, and if we are not able to come down fast as possible, then the people like we have issue with the altitude, of course, is going to be issue. It's going to be problem, right? It's about life and death. Yeah, man. I mean, I live in the Rocky Mountains and the highest mountains here are like where your study sites are at. <laughs> <That's> like, <laughs> I mean, it's just because I mean, the mountains here are so big. So just to think of how much bigger the Himalayas are, it just blows my mind. Like when I was um, flying to Bardia, and saw like, cause you know, we were flying at like 16,500 feet and to look over and the Himalayas were higher than us. <laughs> yeah. Mind blown. Uh, yeah. So that's why it's just even your work is even that much more important because there aren't that many people out there that are willing to do what you're doing. Yeah. I think that is one of the reasons, you know, like there are very few people working in the high mountain. 
But there is a whole lots of gradient to be covered. Like you know, snow leopard can come up to 2,800 meters, 3,000 meters. That's fine. But covering only those areas will not represent all of the habitat. So we want to go high as possible and figure out the extent that snow leopard frequently use and how, how high they go from our recent survey. They are using the area up to 5,600 meters. You know, that was the area that we were going, but they might go even higher. I think like, you know, figuring out this wow. landscape, figuring out this kind of vertical movement pattern is more important uh, in planning species conservation. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's intense. I guess that I'm like whining at our 14ers and you just are doing it like every single day to study this gorgeous cat. Like, <laughs> God, stuff he's doing and is you incredible. Don't see it. <laughs> <laughs> And the best thing is you don't see it. You, know? <laughs> you just know they're there. Yeah. Why? You have no luck. Come next time. We go next time again. And yes. next time. So th- Absolutely, Rinzen. Now, the other question. I need to come see Sonam and you. And we're going to go see still leopards. And we're going to go see red pandas. And it's going Definitely. to be awesome. Yes. And if, we can also, and if we can also see a palace cat, then those Indeed. are like... I know. Hey, <laughs> I got, I got some good luck when I go out and about. So and like I told, I told you, I saw five tigers in one day in Bardia. So yeah, we should, mm-hmm. we should definitely invite you to Manan. In <laughs> with the palace can The grumpiest, cutest cat of all time. <laughs> like, yeah. They're so fun. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. So, so let's talk about this award you just won. What what is it like the the Rolex Award? Um, what do you plan to do with it? How how did you get it? I know a lot of people that might have issues getting funding, and it sounds like you have in the past as well. So so talk about this award. I mean, this is awesome, and so excited to see what comes out of it. But yeah, just just take a second to talk about it. The Rolex Award, you know, is, is a award. The philanthropic aspect of the Rolex was one of the best brand in the world. And they have been supporting uh, the innovative ideas, uh, the, the ideas that bring sense of enterprise, you know, uh, that are more sustainable and, and that are exceptionally unique. Uh, that is what they proposes. And uh, at a long time, at a bigger pace, uh, they want, they really want to support the causes that helps towards achieving uh, like perpetual planet or sustainable planet. And this year, I'm lucky to be one of the winners. I got this award for the category environment for my proposed project, community-based conservation in non-protected landscape of Nepal, basically focusing on the trans-Himalayan ecosystem. So I think it's a it's an overwhelming experience. You know, I was not really expecting it uh, when I was applying, but when you have something in real, like sometimes it's hard to believe. Right in the beginning, it was hard, but. Right now, like I really feel special on these things. You know, this is really motivating and this is really inspiring. Mm-hmm. And yeah, also, of course, in terms of funding, also this is something that will really help me to give a breakthrough uh, to start a project in a very least studied area of the Western Nepal. Yeah, and what is the project that you'll be doing with that? Because you just mentioned community-based conservation. So, what is the the community element that you're hoping to bring into your work? So one of the you know like the key uh, one of the unique feature of my project is we are trying to involve local communities all level from school to the environmental graduate to the citizen science level to the community level. So it's 
completely a community itself. There will be no people coming from outside and working in Hamas. We want to train the new graduate and build them capable of doing conservation projects in the future. So our area, Humla region, you know, is non-protected landscape. There is no protected area there. So it's non-protected landscape, but it deserves more conservation attention. It has been largely overlooked over the years, but we have very rich in highland biodiversity. It's one of the largest transhumanian landscape in Nepal. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a snow leopard. We have lots of uh, Tibetan plateau species, you know, Kian, Argali, Gazelle, Wild Ag, Brown Bears. The diversity is so high, but there is no conservation effort. And for some organization to do a project in this kind of area is not sustainable. You know, they will bring funding, they will hope, and after some years, it's gone. So the situations over the time comes back to the same when, like, you know, and to the beginning again. So what we have to do is now we have to take the ownership. We have to act. We have to act in a very sustainable way. This is our resources and it's our responsibility to conserve our resources. Let's not depend on others for all the time. So let's build up our own capacity. Let's build up the foundation so that like there is a long-term financing mechanism within ourselves. You know, we don't have to depend on donors all the time. Let's build up our generation who can look after, you know, or we can lead the project in this area in a long-term basis. If I'm not there or somebody may not be there. And let's uh, build up our community, you know, general community in such a way that they are environment friendly. You know, they are very participative and they have the sense of what you call Easter award. You know, let's build up the Easter award on them. and let's, let's build up the ownership on them. That is how we can protect our resources on a long-term basis. And there are you know, pros and cons, you know, like we will, and conservation is not just about very strict protection. We are, we have to protect in such a way that we also get benefit, you know. Tourism is one of the very, like, the fastest growing industry in the world. Why can't we take benefit from this? We definitely can, you know, if we have the resources. If we are not able to protect what we have, all this rare, you know, endangered, vulnerable wildlife, then we may not, like, you know, we, we may not benefit or we could not, we cannot promote all those opportunities that our area have. So this is the key thrust, this is the key thrust, you know, that we are really trying to work on. I can hear your passion. This is clearly something that means so much to you, which yeah. that's, oh, that's great. I just, and I just love that this is true community-based conservation, like you said, like this is you working in your own village and this isn't some foreigner coming in. This isn't an outside NGO. Like this is you trying to build up your area to protect the wildlife that you love and help the people that you care so much about. So God, that is gorgeous. That is why I'm so glad that you came on to speak with me. Um, as I was even talking with one of my good friends and he's like, oh, snow leopard expert, who who are you having on? And I, I said it was you. And he's like, oh, that's great. You know, I'm so I'm so glad it's him because n- there's so many, let, let's just say there's so many other foreigners that have published a lot of research in this area. Ugh, I don't know. It just, I love highlighting voices of people like yours. Like you are doing the work. It is your community. It is, uh, it's beautiful. Thank you, Rinson. <laughs> Thank I didn't you. want, I didn't want to talk to anybody else. <laughs> mm. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So what would you say 
this is, we're, we're going to shift back to you for a second. Cause I love asking everybody in this field, this question, what would you say has been the biggest struggle of your career so far, or the hardest thing that you've had to work through to get to where you are today? I think like, you know, like to be recognized as one of, for example, biologists, let's say it's not about biologists. It's itself is the top thing. There are lots of sub brains who are already working on it. And you're one of the new faces among these, and you are uh, struggling to establish yourself as, okay, I'm also there protecting this species. That was already a very heavy tech, I guess. Right? And that is what I fa I faced myself as well. And in the beginning, we don't have the capacity, right? We had the passion, but we didn't have the capacity to do the difference. And we're trying to grow, not just as a paper biologist, but as a modern food biologist. Put your food on the model and learn it, you know, how nature is, because we have to be close to the nature to be protecting it. So, so let's get the insight. And then for that, we have to walk and walk. So our food has to be on the mud all the time, right? No matter what season it is, no matter what time it is. The other thing is struggling with the funding. Funding is always top. When you are new, not many people trust you. And then you write it. As I mentioned, you we didn't have the capacity. Writing skill is not enough. Methodologically, it's not enough. In the, you know, the material is not very scientific, things like that. In terms of analysis, it's not enough. So all this constraint, we have to overcome all this constraint. We know that from the beginning, we are not capable of, you know, of the international standard that many biologists are already. So we have to build up all these things slowly and slowly. But the, the, the biggest strength was mountain is our native land. You know, we are the local. So we, we, we can rip the mountains better. Like uh, there was something we can add up it very faster. No matter whether it's in Manam or Mustang or Everest or Humla, because there is very huge community similarities. We will share the similar culture, similar language. That is something like we are very confident about. Okay, this part, no problem. We can handle it. But the other, the high level things, we have to learn it. And we struggle it. And over seven, eight years, we managed to, I think, achieve something. You know, not everything, but something. So right now, like we are most in a better position when we were starting. Now we have a little bit of the experience. We have a little bit of the exposure. Connection is better. And with the Rolex Award, there's a bit of the recognition of our work that we have been doing over the past. And I think this is something like the, the story starts and the story is still continuing on. Yeah. Just like you said, you had the biggest advantage because you can learn and you are currently, you can learn how to be a fantastic biologist, but no one can come in and know the area better than you. Like you have the biggest advantage than any other snow leopard biologist that it's out there. If they're not from there, then you already have a leg up because you can learn those skills and you're currently learning those skills. So just, just imagine 40 years from now and you've made these insane discoveries. Like you are... <laughs> the snow leopard expert and everyone's going to immediately look at you because you are Nepalese, like you are from the country. So yeah, that's why I can't wait to share your story with the world. I'm like, everybody follow him because he's going to make the amazing breakthroughs that we're all looking for because you have a huge advantage. Yeah, your work on time already started imagining all that in a bigger picture. Oh my God. <laughs> yes, yes, manifest it. Let's make it. Mm, Renzen, Dr. Renzen. 
you know, <laughs> if you want to go back and get your PhD or something like that. Oh, it'd be great. So on that note, since you already have overcome so much, what piece of advice would you like to share with anybody listening that might be a biologist or wanting to go in conservation or doing something like you're doing? What advice would you like to share with them? I think the most important thing first, the first requirement is passion. So you have to have passion what you are going to do. If we don't have passion, then I think things will come out. You know, it has to come. It, it, it's, it's more about passion. The second thing is about patience. You know, what we want to do never, like, it's not always, uh, you know, it's not certain that it will work very easily. There are sets of things, challenges, right? Every job has its own challenges. So we have to have patience uh, to wait for the result. And the other thing is continuity. Continuity is important. If we are not able to continue it, we want to do something and then it doesn't work and then we quit it. And never it's never going to work because as we continue, if we keep on switching things, it doesn't work out. So continuity is important, you know. And the, the other thing is faith. So we have to have faith on ourselves. We have to trust ourselves. I can do it. You know, if we have this combination, then definitely things comes in a way we wish. Uh, but it might take, it might happen earlier or later, but it certainly will happen. That is fantastic advice. Yes. Just have the passion and just keep going and don't stop. Keep going. Yeah, be optimistic, uh, of course. Be optimistic, you know, and, and then the, everything is with you. It's, it's all about the person, right? So nature is not going to come to us. We have to go to the nature. Or, <laughs> or if we want to make money, money is not going to come to us. We have to do something that brings money, you know. So it's all on us. Yeah, it's all in our power. We just have to go do it and get it. Yes, I love it. Yes, exactly. And everyone has incredible power. The only thing is we have to realize it. We have to have faith and we have to implement it. I think that's one of the things you know, we have to do. Yeah. That might be like the best quote from this. <laughs> I was like, that epic already I'm just like quotes. Rinzen Lama. <laughs> that was gorgeous. That was so good. That was so good. So I mean, how can somebody abroad help with snow leopards? How could someone like me or anybody because this is actually an international audience that that listens to the podcast? So I mean, I ha- obviously have an insane passion for these cats and so how can somebody else support you or support the cats or support the work to help conserve them? The first thing is love is no leopard, you know, like maybe you are able to support directly or indirectly. It doesn't matter. I think having love or like having liking the species itself is a big thing. So other thing, I think like your program is really fantastic. You do reach out to lots of people, you know, who, who may or may not be aware about the species. And this is already one of the, what do you call, big leap in terms of outreach, you know, that is something very supportive. And those like who really want to contribute, you know, maybe like either Sinchu or where visit the zoo because the ticket you buy from the zoo is already supporting the cause of different, not just snow leopard, the whole set of the species protection. You can support or you can write about a snow leopard, you know, in different way. It doesn't necessarily always have to give money, but in different way. Tell your children about snow leopard, tell your friend about snow leopard, you know, and then that is how the connection works out, you know, so, so mouth to mouth, you know, and then it leads to a wider audience and maybe like some, there, maybe like some of your friends, parents might be millionaire, who knows? They go to, uh, what do you call like, they go to the Denver Zoo and support for some cause. I think 
you know, like this is how all the momentum works out. So keep loving the spaces, keep loving the mountain. Yes, it's gorgeous. Just talk about it. Just keep being the microphone for these cats that can't feed the microphone themselves. So yes, I love that. I love that. Um, so is there, is there anything that you wish I would have asked you? Is there a point that we didn't hit that you really want to talk, talk about? I think like we covered pretty much of the topic, you know, like I think there are no information missing, but, uh, about the harders engagement, you know, what they think, or maybe like we just miss out some topic on this. The big part of our work depends on the herders, herders communities, you know, or the nomads who are out in the field most of the time. And then the challenges of working with them. Uh, and like, for example, like sometimes you are just coming from the field and you see the snow leopard kill livestock and then you meet the herders. And how are you going to chase them in that situation? You know, <laughs> we have to imagine it. Just imagine yourself. You are coming from the field with all your sets of equipment and then you meet the herders. We have just lost livestock in snow leopard. And then you have to handle that situation. And we have to be able to convince them, you know, be positive. So that's tough, something like really tough, but not impossible, you know. So when we put, like when we see ourselves in this situation, it's sometimes very difficult. Not many people experience this. You know, mm -hmm. we often experience these things. And like recently, last year, a few years back, we were meeting a herders who lost uh, 40, 40 plus golden cities, no leopard. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and then like uh, in Monang, when we go to Monang, like there are lots of, you know, the big sort of thing, like the heavy snowfall is killing already lots of livestock. Mm. And then there's a snow leopard killing additional, and there's a wolf killing additional. And then and you want to do your pre-log there and you you go to them and, okay, don't kill, you have, we have to protect it. And then imagine the response they might give you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, is there any compensation for them? Like, we have a compensation mechanism, but it's very complicated. You know, you have to mm. go through the sets of processes and for the herders who are up in the mountain to fulfill this criteria is not easy. We try to, what you call, like simplify it, but process is process, you know. Like if somebody wants to really have a compensation, we have to come through that. And meeting all those criteria for illiterate people who live in the mountain is itself is very tough things. Mm. Yeah, since... Um so I know, you know, Bijou as well. She talked a lot about that being in a village that lives with, you know, this dangerous wildlife, but doesn't have any of the benefits of a national park or a buffer zone. There's more ways to be compensated or helped when something goes wrong. And um, she talked a lot about that too, you know, living with elephants as what her village deals a lot with. And so that's why I wanted to ask you as well. So it sounds like snow leopards and these other big predators are a really big problem. And there's no national park or strong tourism component, sounds like, that could help these herders with the livestock depredations. Yeah, I think I'll just add a few things on this, you know. So when we speak about communities, communities are big numbers, not just few. There are tourism entrepreneurs who are really getting benefited. People come to Sisnola, but they live in the lodges. Uh, they use the local travel as a guide. Not everyone is benefiting. So when we look at the conservation perspective, you know, we have to be very judgmental about the communities, different level of communities. You know, For herders, their livestock might be something for them, right? Maybe like the 
conserving biodiversity of maybe of less importance. Now the biggest question is of livelihood. Right? For tourism entrepreneur, protecting Eastern Leopard might be a biggest, you know, what the harder field they may not care about it. Right. So within the same community, there are startups, different set of startups, different set of understanding. So we must be able to address all these things, uh, what do you call like uh, in lump sum. We have to address all this in a holistic approach, not just some people are happy and some people are sad. So bringing, bridging this gap, you know, trying to reduce this very two different gap is also one of the challenges. And we have to work in that direction. I think that is more important. So not everybody can benefit, right? Some benefit, some doesn't. But uh, for those who are not benefiting on worse role, it's also very important in person biodiversity. We have to support them, diversify the livelihood. And that is where the big question comes. If the herders are not benefiting from tourism, less, uh, we have to less in, uh, innovate something that is supportive to their livelihood so that they, ha they have like a better tolerance. You know? so this kind of innovation is required and this comes from the local knowledge, from the local level. Not the big scientists from the USC can come and innovate this. No, it's not going to work out. Right? We have to be thinking this from the local perspective with a local idea. And then that is more sustainable. Maybe uh, the branding and all the technological things we could import from somewhere, but the root idea has to come from local. What can be done? Okay, we have to sit with the orders. Okay, let's work on this. You know, uh, and this thing is important. So conservation—that is why I said conservation is very complex. It's not easy. It's not one way. It's multiple way, and you know everything get mixed on it. We have to be able to separate what base components are, and refix it again in the same direction so that it works in a very effective way. And, and that is the biggest inspiration and that is the biggest challenge. Mm, absolutely. Biggest opportunity to make big change. That's what it exactly. sounds like. Yeah. Has there, with sitting down with the herders, has a, or, or is this something that you're planning to do, has an, a sustainable alternative income idea come to light yet? with sitting down with them? Or is that something that you're planning on doing soon to hopefully uh, help with that? And we have been interacting with her for a long time, right? And trying to come up with an idea that is uh, really, uh, what do you call like low cost, uh, easy to handle, socially you know, favorable. Uh, we have been coming up with lots of ideas. Now our next focus will be how to concretize it, you know, how to make it, how to give it a set, how to develop it as an enterprise. No, not just that we support one time and when we come mm -hmm. back next time, it's gone, right? And we cannot replace it again. So let's build something that continues. Even mm -hmm. if the harder, specific harder is not there. For example, I support a harder named Rinjin, you know, like, and then when he's not there, the enterprise dies, nothing like that. If, even if he's not there, the enterprise still continues. So we have to link this with their profession, you know, with the out, with their product. In that way, but that product has to be sellable, not not something that is really unique, but nobody buys it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so sellable product, and that that is more frequent. If the demand is high, we we are still able to meet that demand. Right? If the demand is not high, we can still sustain in that way. So this is the challenge, but this is also the opportunity, as we said before, and we are exploring this in Honda. Mm. Wow. Well, I can't wait to hear what you all come up with. Yeah. And of course, if there's, if it's something that anyone in the U.S. can help with, or if it's like a really cool, I don't know, product, I don't know, just 
Yeah. Keep me in the loop. <laughs> yeah. I know you will, but for Those sure. Or, or maybe like, you know, this day, the units are so creative. If somebody is listening to your program and then they have some creative ideas, how to, you know, how to develop the product out of like different scenarios, for example, uh, like, you know, like maybe like using wireless image to do something or, you know, that also like that can be merchandise or something like that. They're welcome to follow our project and give their advice or, you know, there is some opportunities or to, like you want to volunteer or something, whatever, you know, like I'm happy to take the advice. I'm happy to take the feedback you know, and that in that way, that will be really supportive. Mm, yeah. Multiple minds are better than just one. So that one would be mind. all and the collaboration. <laughs> and global mind. Global yes. mind is much better. <laughs> yes. Because who knows? Maybe someone who has worked with, uh, I don't know, Pumas and Patagonia, like exactly. this, this something works there. Maybe yeah. there is an applicable way to modify what they successfully did that would be, you know, usable in, in your research area um yeah because yeah, wolves or somebody wolf yeah or, you know, somebody mm -hmm. lives close to wolves and i think in the u.s wolf is also a big issue right oh or, it's, or it's, grizzly bear. it's a big it thing matter, you know? <laughs> but it has to be predator you know, that people have experience at this grizzly or wolves or puma that's fine but you know the innovation is how it's like uh what we approach to mitigate these kind of things is what works for all the predators. You know? But the ground setting would be different. But advice, are, well, I'm very happy to take the advice. Mm. Well, I'll make sure if anybody reaches out, that I'll definitely connect to, connect, yeah. uh, connect you together. To do a that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you never say no to a fundraiser. That's for sure. Yeah, no, of course. No way. Yeah, definitely. So I think the next uh, question that makes the most sense is how can somebody get connected with you? Are you on social media? What's your website? How can someone get a hold of you? Yeah, the, the best, I think the regular thing uh, to be easiest thing to connect is my Instagram. It writes at Lama Rengin, you know, Lama, L-A-M-A-R-I-N-C-I-N, so Lama Rengin. And but we will also have our project website. Uh, uh, it's under construction. We have not, you know, it's not final yet. Our follow-on thoughtful conservancy, you know, the like our is our organizational website. Uh, if somebody wants to follow my personal journey, then it's Lama Rengin. It's, it's more easy. But we will also have our project social media that I will share. You know, maybe like when the podcast, how we could edit it later and edit later. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll definitely keep you in the loop. So maybe by the time that this goes out, all of those will be live. And mm -hmm. you can send me those and I can make sure that they're in the show notes. Because I want to... I'll write to you. Yes. <laughs> I'll write to you. It's one of the easiest things, other things. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, um, so if anybody wants to get in contact with you, then of course, I'm always happy to put everybody in connection with each other. So... That's a call out to anyone listening. If you have any good sustainable incomes for people that happen to live with dangerous wildlife, specifically predators, that would be awesome. Or any other way to help support snow leopards and, and your work, Renzen. So I've had a blast today. Um, I just, did you have any parting thoughts that you wanted to say before we go? I think that's a, like, have, uh, you know, like let's love our environment. And we have to protect this for our own betterment. And in a larger scale, if you 
can support other causes as well. For example, like it's not about conservation in Nepal, not necessarily in the US, but in different part of the world, you know, support in the best way you can. And that is how we can save our planet. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much for coming on with me, Renzen. And I cannot wait to help share the world with your story and snow leopards. Thank you. I really enjoyed the program. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>